0: Right. do it <laughs> uh anna
1: pigorna thank you so much for joining me today um i wish that we were talking um under different circumstances I, we should be talk we should have done this way before well before this and i
0: <laughs> i know I want,
1: I want you to know that uh you're, you're, the door is always open in the future if you ever want to come back on and chat about other things um
0: awesome
1: but um I want to spend most of the t- most of the time today just listening and asking dumb questions, if that's okay, um, because Thanks. I, you are the first person that I ever worked with who is of Ukrainian descent and um, introduced me to some Ukrainian music that um, I have zero cultural relationship to. I grew up in a cornfield in Ohio, and sort of to to play with you, I think it was 2000, what year was that?
0: 2015, 2000,
1: yeah. It f- feels like ages ago but it was only seven years seven years ago um and I I have these very uh, the piece was called weeping for a,
0: a dead love
1: for a dead love and I, I listened through it last night and I I was struck by a lot of things and I, I would love for you to talk about that music. Um, I kind of don't know where to start other than to just tell me a little bit about yourself um, and sort of where, your your background and then we'll we'll go from there. I mean, there's the obvious topic of the, the war in Ukraine right now that I, I want to touch on, but I kind of, I don't, I don't have an agenda here. <laughs> I kind of want to just go where you want to go. Um, but why don't sure. you tell me if that's okay with you? Um, why don't you tell me a little bit about your background and sort of like what brought you mm-hmm. to this, to, to today, um, basically?
0: Yeah. So I was born in Ukraine when it was still the Soviet Union, 1985. Uh, in '91, uh, Ukraine became independent, and there was a, a really difficult time economically, as uh, you know, all the Soviet industry collapsed. Uh, so in '97, my parents and I and my sister we immigrated to Canada. Uh, and settled in, like, the greater Vancouver region, where my parents have been this whole time. Um, so I finished high school here. I did my undergrad and master's in Canada, and then went to Princeton University for my PhD, which is how we know each other, because I think you guys started your residency there. So Percussion started their residency the same year that I started, I believe. I that's, that's probably right, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I... I didn't do any music in Ukraine that wasn't really part of my family or opportunities that I was getting. So I only started music in Canada and got into it in a very kind of amateur way, like through guitar lessons and uh, high school band and jazz band. Um, So by the time I started university, I could basically barely read music. Um, So there was a lot to catch up on. Um, And then I uh, became interested in Ukrainian folk music, kind of towards the end of my undergrad. And really, in my master's is when I uh, traveled to Ukraine for three months to go around villages on a Canada Council for the Arts grant. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Canada Council. Um, So uh, I went around villages, staying in the homes of elderly women and recording them, and I was accompanied by a Ukrainian folk singer and ethnomusicologist uh, Irina Danileko, who is in Ukraine right now, living through all of this horror. Um, and uh, yeah, so these women just opened their homes to me and and my sister, and they told us a lot of stories and and fed us and and sang. So it, it was really amazing, and. This experience, like truly, had a really transformative effect on my practice as a composer. I started incorporating a lot of those uh, folk idioms into my instrumental writing, kind of trying to capture the, I guess, the more the grittiness of of the sound, which is so mm-hmm. in contrast with this kind of like clean cl- classical sound of the Mozart era, you know, mm-hmm. um, and. But I was also interested in the particular vocal quality. Uh, just the the singing uses a like a, a different kind of timbre, and the, it varies throughout the country. It's not like all the same style. Um, and I really wanted to be able to incorporate that into my work. But you know, to find a singer who can sing like that, but who's also trained in the classical way and can read a score, it's. Virtually impossible. Well, I'm sorry to it, I
1: mean, that's one of the things, yeah. as I was listening back last night, I kept trying to think to myself, like, do people just pick this piece up and play it? Like, I feel like there's, you really have to know... Like, Anna is singing stuff that... She's clearly been in the living room of someone who taught her this song. You know, like... or I mean, has, no,
0: no one else has performed it. Only I have performed it. And I've done it with yeah. other percussion quartets and i really love performing the piece it's quite cathartic uh, but yeah i can't imagine a you know a classically trained senior doing it it's just it would be not the same effect <laughs> yeah
1: yeah i mean there's there's authenticity there i mean i i don't i'm trying to think of what in my life has that same exact sort of gravitas to it and i you know it's like there's it's a there's a yeah particular ownership of that that language and that especially you know just singing in different language you know i can learn i can learn italian and try to sing some italian words but like i've never spoken italian to anyone so like what do i what am i singing what's the context what's the intent behind what it is i'm singing you know and that's something you clearly had when we were working together and so um i'm trying to imagine you teaching that all to somebody else who has no no connection to ukrainian you know funeral culture and what what those words mean and why they're being sung but can I can I ask you? Um, so you were seven or twelve when you moved twelve. to Canada? Is that twelve?
0: <laughs> twelve. Yeah. Um,
1: one of the things I'm I'm struck by as I I try to be a student of history and and learn a bit about the you know the fall of the Soviet Union and and not even just that particular time, but all of the things that led to that. Like it wasn't just like the Soviet Union fell. There was stuff that happened eighty years prior to that that were set up post World War One and World War Two and all these things. Um I'm curious as a twelve year old when you were moving, like what how much of how much of that was something that you were aware of? Like did your parents talk about it? Was it I, I'm just kind of curious, what was in the air as a twelve year old when you were you know, sitting around uh, the dinner table listening to what they were talking about? Hmm. What were the conversations like?
0: That's a really good question. Um Yeah, I'm trying to think back. Uh my father comes from a more Ukrainian kind of Ukrainian speaking background he had family in the countryside where the language continued uninterrupted so he's he speaks Ukrainian very very fluently uh, and he um, and he heard the like the kind of music that I was later recording he heard it you know in his village so that's really his culture and he I mean, he was not like an active dissident of the Soviet Union. He wasn't out there trying to fight the government, but, you know, he also was not a believer of the system. Um, And he was very interested in Ukrainian history, which, um, you know, both the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union really changed in order to fit their own narrative, right? Like, you control the history and you control how the people see themselves
1: tell me a little bit more about drill down on that for me because as again as somebody um i grew up in ohio yes there are parts of history that that got recontextualized and told to me in certain ways but the the degree to which that happened what, like, it just wasn't as much of a thing for me in Ohio as it was. Like, what, well, what exactly? of course
0: not. Yeah, right, of course but I, it wasn't saying, a thing for you. <laughs> I'm saying the most obvious
1: thing there, but, like, I have no in there. Like, So tell me yeah. exactly, like, what, what exactly do you mean by it when you say that? Yeah,
0: so I guess the most major thing is that, uh, like, um, there was a major kind of kingdom uh, around Kyiv, in the Middle Ages. Kiev was one of the largest cities in Europe at that time and it had connections with all over Western Europe. In fact a a famous Ukrainian princess married into the French royalty. She was Queen Anna actually, I think. Uh so and there's memorials to her in Paris and I believe even she was literate and her husband wasn't. So there's evidence, there's a document with um their two signatures, and I think his is essentially just some, you know, some mark on the paper, and hers is she wrote her entire name. So, so that was Ukraine, and I mean, it wasn't called Ukraine, it was called Kievan Rus. Uh, That was that area. Kievan Rus. Okay, all right. So that, that is what my people come from. But the Russian Empire, or Moscovy at that time, it started as Moscovy around Moscow. uh, Basically, they needed to build legitimacy around themselves when they started looking at the West, and they wanted to be an equal player with all the kingdoms in the West. They started to claim that Kievan Rus was their, was their route. As if like, all of the kind of nobility of Kievan Rus just like went north for whatever reason Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Mm -hmm. then established itself in Moscow. So they, and they continue, Russia continues to claim that Kievan Rus is their history. And this is why, this is why they lay claim on Ukraine. They think that Ukraine should be part of Russia because it is their history.
1: Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, I mean, and this is, I mean, the, I, the reason I ask that question, I mean, I, uh, when I'm thinking about, when I think about the, the regional history, I mean, to me, the things that pop up only because that's what I know are, like, the Treaty of Versailles and post-World War II and, like, the way that land got sort of, like, chopped up as or, in order to create a barrier so that the West was, you know, we were, all of these non-aggression treaties, like, all these things, but of course, I mean, that area, the history of that area is, like, thousands of years old. And when I see yeah. people online talking about, like, oh, why is Ukraine important? Like, this, that's why I ask the dumb question, because this isn't just Putin randomly deciding, oh, I think Ukraine might be nice to have. Like,
0: they've is, been trying to have Ukraine for hundreds of years, basically. Right. We can, <laughs> yeah. Like,
1: and looking at Putin as this, like, singular person who's, like, making a decision not real. it's like no 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 no. he's in a long line of czars that have been thinking like this and we look at him in the same way we might look at one of our presidents and it's like that you can't like no like he's not the same figure that obama or even trump like trump is in a lineage of presidents who are democratically elected we can think what we want about trump but like mm-hmm. he doesn't come from a line of czars
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know yeah and that's I, right. I, mm-hmm.
1: that distinction to me keeps smacking me in the face and i'm surprised that we aren't you know I'm surprised that people are surprised, and when I talk to you, it doesn't you don't seem very surprised, and that's kind of why I asked the question- i mean am i am I misdiagnosing anything there like
0: yeah, i mean i I can't say that I was necessarily aware of all this as a twelve year old mm-hmm. but this is something you know, just as I was growing up, I mean this was definitely a conversation in my home, especially coming from my dad. um my mother's side of the family comes from a very Russianized part of the country, southern Ukraine uh the city is called uh, Kherson which has been in the news lately it's been occupied by uh, russian troops though we just saw videos last night people came out in the thousands to with ukrainian flags to protest against russian troops like this is insane people are so brave anyway but this region it was um really really colonized by the russian empire during catherine the great So, it's a very Russian-speaking part. So, my mom really grew up more immersed in that kind of Soviet and Russian culture. Uh, So, my family speaks Russian at home, though we are increasingly switching to Ukrainian (laughs) for obvious reasons, because, you know, we don't want to be rescued by Russia. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Right now in Kherson, pe- the people are coming to the streets and they're yelling at the Russian soldiers, like, listen to us, we're speaking in Russian. No one oppressed us here. We don't want Russia here. Go home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can,
1: you know, one of the things that I was struck by, uh, and sorry to keep sort of uh, honing in on this this moment of the Soviet era like the ending of the Soviet era, but one of the first gigs that I played with So Percussion early on in my time was so was in Odessa. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And um, we, you know, was at the Potemkin Steps and, uh, you know, all of these, uh, just, just everything to me felt massive. And I was just like, I remember walking around Odessa and just being like, wow, like this is just bonkers. All this stuff is so big. And then you start to see, it was the first place where I, I, I felt like the town was trying to hide a, a reality in a weird way. A lot of the buildings had this, a scrim in front of them that had a picture of what the building should look like. Mm. But the building wasn't functional anymore. And like, So there was all this weird, like it looked beautiful, but as soon as you got close enough to it, you were like, wait a minute, that's a scrim in front of that building. And then we went the hotel we stayed in, they had a, a plaque that was framed that said, no water like hmm. it was like framed from like the 80s <laughs> like this and it wasn't nobody even addressed it like when we checked in and as a you know in 2008 i'm not there's no value judgment here but as a 2008 you know 26 year old kid i was like
0: "Where? no why, water where
1: yeah are we right now <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: And i didn't know really much about and so then you know, you talked to I remember I remember introduced I said thank you in Russian to one of the students and she sort of pulled me aside and taught me a little bit of Ukrainian to be like, you know, just so you know, you might get a few less stink eyes if you say this than this, you know? And I started to think like, wow, this is I I had never been to a place like that. And so can can you tell me like what were the effects, like the direct effects that happened when the Soviets left? I got the sense there that there was this like pride but also clearly they had been abandoned and no one was coming to help fix anything and i'm just i was like kind of you you
0: mean uh, you mean when the soviet union fell apart
1: Uh, uh, when i say abandoned i don't mean like uh, i'm trying to sorry like infrastructure like like it just felt like hmm. there was there was no support there and i it felt like everybody was kind I, of. On I mean,
0: their own, the, you know, I mean, it's not it's not like the Soviets left, right? I mean, the Soviets were all part of the system. It's just they mm-hmm. were all still there. It's just the system collapsed, and we started trying to build the new life according to the capitalist model. Mm-hmm. But you know, it doesn't happen overnight, right, and right. all of those um, a lot of Soviet industry was really far behind. Basically, mm-hmm. it, it couldn't compete with the West. It wasn't mm-hmm. putting out goods at the same level at the same technology level also a lot of those factories were oriented towards military production mm. like that was the primary focus and the consumer goods were kind of side side gig for a lot of these factories mm. um so then, yeah, when the Soviet system fell apart then suddenly all this industry is non-competitive and then there were all of this corruption around how it got privatized. So basically, uh, people, some people gathered enormous wealth. So what should have been kind of, what technically belonged to everyone now belongs to a number of oligarchs. So that obviously didn't help. Um, yeah, and then just, you know, people had to, completely changed careers in many cases like there were uh, university academics selling cabbages in the market because at that moment no one needed university academics Mm -hmm. you know Um, so yeah it was the 90s were really difficult time where it's like you know like you had to think about where your food was coming from like my parents said one summer they, they sent me and my sister to stay with my grandparents and then they were essentially living off like uh, whatever they were growing at at their little patch of land. So,
1: <laughs> I mean, I yeah. I asked the question out of ignorance a little bit, but also out of trying to clock. I think my own and our own privilege as Americans that like, you know, we see history in these weird episodic, like, twenty year chunks, and we're like, oh, well, this could never happen, and our this this system is well, this is the way it always works, right? And you know, capitalism is the way it. I mean, that's what happens, right? And you never really question the way in which you got to a situation. And, you know, we, what was it, five years ago, President Zelensky was embroiled in a, you know, impeachment trial in the U.S. And we were all like, oh, well, this is, you know, everybody took sides and it was like, well, and now Zelensky's wearing a flak jacket and you can think whatever you want about him, but it is apparent that our two systems are not the same. And... One of them would never allow for one of our presidents, no matter what we think, of either one of them, to be in a flak jacket, hiding in a basement, making Molotov cocktails. Yeah. And one system, whether it wants to allow it or not, that's where it is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I just... I, as a 42-year-old man, all of these things, like, now I'm, I'm thinking about the conversations I had in Ukraine of, like, oh, ah, okay. That, yeah. little, that that young girl pulling me aside is like connected to a thousand years ago you know <laughs> in some small way this stuff is all woven together and connected we aren't separated from catherine the great really i mean what no, that, was a, that and, was a couple people ago
0: <laughs> yeah and <laughs> no. uh n- no one really frames it this way in the west but Ukraine was colonized. Ukraine was colonized by a number of the empires that were around it, and chunks of it were changing hands multiple times. It was colonized for resources because it is it is the breadbasket of Europe. It has really rich soil. It has a lot of natural resources. So it was a colony, and the language was suppressed. The way that the ling- the indigenous languages of North America have been suppressed... When people tried to protest, they were they were repressed very heavily. That's why we had that enormous famine in 1933, where I believe around eight million people died. That though that's that's colonization.
1: Sorry, I, I'm just thinking about everything you're saying and trying to formulate some sort of coherent <laughs> question. Um, I one thing I'm curious about is, you know, I the mainstream media right now. And when I say mainstream, I'm not. I'm trying not to say that in the like in the way that everybody talks about. There there are good versions of media and there are bad versions. But I would say even the best versions of the media right now are forced into this 24 hour news cycle everything's pre-packaged, pre-produced and curated with a headline that gets the most clicks and the headline changes 10 minutes later if it isn't getting enough clicks and it makes me very scared of what I'm being told about what's happening in Ukraine Um, texted a good friend of mine who teaches at USC and he was telling me the first words out of his mouth were that Putin was going to drop a nuke on Chernobyl that thought never even crossed my mind and it wasn't coming well, I wasn't seeing those I mean, where, no one was no one was talking about it in the news and I was like wait a minute but mutually assured destruction right and he's like
0: he doesn't give a shit
1: right and it's now, a week later, we're starting to hear some people talk about, why is Putin in Chernobyl? And it's like, oh my god, this is such...
0: And, and Ukrainians have been like, Europe, Putin's in Chernobyl, <laughs> come right.
1: on! Right, and yes, he he may try to nuke it and, and create a, a nuclear disaster there, but it's also psychological warfare. The mm-hmm. They had... Chernobyl was run by the Russians, that's why we know it as Chernobyl, because it melted down and they didn't tell anybody. And they hid yeah. it, and they forced their own people to go in and shovel uranium chunks out, you know, like...
0: Well, and the thing is, you don't even have to nuke it. You just shoot at it, and it does its, it. does the rest. And it's not just Chernobyl. Right. They've been fighting over other nuclear power plants. There are multiple power plants in Ukraine. There is, a, I believe, the one in Zaporizhia is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. And there's been several days of fighting around it. Like the Russian troops are shooting at a nuclear power plant because they're that stupid.
1: I mean, you know, this is, they're,
0: it's like they don't even have the education to understand that you can't shoot at a nuclear power plant. Like,
1: well, I'm. this is like, what, like, in terms of, I want to ask you, like, what are some, what are the things, like, clearly Russian soldiers aren't even being told what they're doing and why they're doing it. Some of them are, like, texting their moms and being like, wait a minute, I'm on the border of Kiev right now and I didn't, why are we here, you know? And so, like, well, what?
0: that's also really unclear. We we look at it with a bit of skepticism because, for so many of them, the story comes out in such like the same way. It mm-hmm. really feels like they're that's what they're being told to say in order to not be killed mm-hmm. and when they're yeah, I mean. like taken prisoner. So I don't know. We're taking it with a grain of salt. Like some of these kids really do seem like yeah, like I look at them like oh my god, this poor kid like. He has no idea. He's like badly equipped. He's obviously undertrained. Like it looks like he can barely hold a gun. Um, but but yeah, we are looking at that with a grain of salt.
1: Uh, well, in that context, then, so what are what are some things that are not being, or what are what are some things that are being misreported in the media, by your estimation? Um, and then what are some things that just aren't being reported that you feel is really important that folks know?
0: Well, to be honest, I haven't been keeping up with the Western reporting too closely because there's just, like, so much information coming our way. Um, We have our kind of our own channels of information. Like, um, there are, you know, the apps Viber and Telegram that are similar to WhatsApp. They're more popular in Ukraine. So there are actual, like, channels where updates get posted all the time about things that are happening, like... For example, if there's air raid siren somewhere, or if there's bombing somewhere, or if uh, some chunk of a city was retaken, uh, but also mixed in with like international news of like this is what's happening with sanctions. It's just like this dump of information constantly, or like videos of a air- Russian airplane getting shot down, or video of a Ukrainian tractor pulling a Russian tank. You know, it's like just this like stream of information, so that's mostly what our family's been following, with just, like, occasionally dipping into Western news, just to see what, like, yeah, what people out here are saying. Uh, I mean, largely, I think the deporting has been good. Uh, There's been a few concerns um, in terms of which, in terms of the kind of counter-propaganda that Russia's trying to put into it, so... Mm -hmm. One thing that started circulating was that there were apparently, uh, like Nazi flags at Ukrainian rallies, and what they were referring to were these, uh, black and red flags of the, um, the UPA, it's like the Ukrainian, uh, I forget Ukrainian People's Army or something like that, I forget what the acronym stands for, but it was, uh, Essentially, a guerrilla fighting group in World War II who were fighting both against the Soviets and against the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And then, when the war ended, they continued guerrilla warfare against the Soviets for like a good ten years mm-hmm. after the end of the war. And of course, Soviet Union painted them as fascists because they were fighting Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. like in the Soviet Union, the worst thing you could be is a fascist or a Nazi. Because you know we fought them in mm-hmm. World War Two, and yet now Germans are helping us defend Kiev from Russians. Like it's like the irony is insane. I um, yeah,
1: <laughs> it's so it's just so. <laughs> I mean, I know, right? It's <laughs> so amazing how fast things switch and can turn. You know,
0: but but yeah, so uh, people have been bringing the flags of that liberation army to some of the rallies and then some Western media I probably being pushed by Russia has picked it up and said oh ukrainians are bringing Nazi symbolism or fascist symbolism nationalist symbolism to these rallies but it yeah so that's one thing to watch out then I remember there was some article circulating that apparently like students of African descent who were fleeing Ukraine right now are claiming that you Ukrainians were racist towards them. And it's like, okay, who are we pointing our fingers at as if there's no racism against black people everywhere else in the world? Like, you know, like, what what is this information supposed to tell us? What That Ukraine deserves to be bombed because maybe some people were racist? And, like, I mean, I'm not justifying racism, but I'm just putting it in context of, like, the world... I mean, right. I think, yeah, I so, think
1: context is key for almost everything, and you know, it's yeah. you have you have to factor in the fact that there's a war being fought. You know, in, in, yeah.
0: And so, yes, so, um, an,
1: an act of racism is in context in that moment, and also may not be true.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know? well, like I have no idea. I have no way to verify this. Um, and I guess the another thing that I don't think the West has reported on a law at all because well frankly i don't think western countries have any context for this it's just like the sense of humor Mm. that's around like like ukrainians have a really dark sense of humor (laughs) and oh my you should see the humor that is circulating through our community like and within ukraine just to do with this war like what I
1: love. Well, to be clear, I love comedy, and I am obsessed with almost all comedy, but dark comedy in particular, I
0: I'm, I I'm mean, down
1: with all day. Um,
0: I mean, a lot of it right now it's very dark because like people are very angry at the Russian troops, obviously. So there's a lot of humor to do with their destruction, of course, and because I mean, right now, like I'm I I didn't think I would ever be in this place, but. Before going to bed to make myself feel better, I watched vi- I watched videos of Russian helicopters being shot down, mm. because that makes me feel better, you know, like that's where I, I am right now. I so think, there's humor, yeah. yeah, there's humor to do with that, but there's also things like, like I don't know, <laughs> like there's one thing circulating from Twitter that like a woman in Kiev took took out a Russian drone by throwing a jar of pickles at it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's hilarious, right? But <laughs> well, what's,
1: is there, there's a slang term, um, for Molotov cocktails, too, that I saw. Oh, yeah, around.
0: the Bandera smoothies.
1: What are, What is that? What is the term? Mean? Oh, yeah, I
0: should put that in context. So Bandera was, again, one of these uh, Ukrainian freedom fighters who mm-hmm. emerged in uh, around World War II, I believe, or maybe even earlier. I I should know this history better. But, um, but yeah, he was also fighting against the Soviets, so he was, like, enemy number one. Mm-hmm associated with ukrainian culture and russians use the word like uh, Banderovets so like the person who's like associated with bandera mm-hmm. as an insult against ukrainians and that implies that we're that again has like, these fascist undertones that mm-hmm. if you are okay. a supporter of bandera then you're a fascist um so right now ukrainians have like a lot of ukrainians who previously might have been distancing themselves from that figure because he is he had nationalist leanings like he was fighting for the independence of his country right so now everyone's taken up that uh label with pride and oh so i guess this is like one example of a really dark joke but that's really funny in this context is uh it's like a tiny dialogue, and you know someone from Russia says, "You are a you're a Bandera supporter and a fascist," and the person in Ukraine replies, "I know. Our whole synagogue is like this." <laughs> <laughs> and like, and you have to put that in context. Like, this is after Russia bombed a major Holocaust memorial site, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and this yeah. is the only too. like, am I, am I wrong? that is Zelensky Jewish?
0: He is, yeah. Right, I yeah, mean, and this is, is
1: when, I, when I saw, prior to the invasion, there was a statement by, both by Putin and then by the Chinese government that sort of, like, supported what Putin said. I um, was talking about, like, we are going to root out neo-Nazis, and I was like, Hold on. <laughs> uh, let me Google Zelensky real quick here. I think he probably has a vested interest in that, you might... You might could team up with him if that's really what you want to do. Like <laughs> I, Well,
0: and he's also a Russian speaker. Like right.
1: You know, and I what but what I heard there in that statement was a ton of red flags went off for me because what I heard was I think he was talking to us. I mean, I think he was yeah. talking to American culture, which he's been doing via social media for the last six years. He has been staging Um, You know, women's rights protests next to anti- or Nazi protests, um, Mm. setting them up via Facebook bots and creating discontent in the U.S. that isn't real. Like, and the idea, and he's trying to gin us up over here to get like, wait a minute, there's Nazis? There's nothing worse in America than a Nazi. Just ask the far left. We like to punch them. You know, and it's like we got Proud Boys. And like, it's like all of a sudden now we're all like, you know what? Yeah, Zelensky, get out those Nazis.
0: Well, uh, the, that's but what I have heard in that statement. Yeah, you know. I know, uh, but this is something that Zelensky himself pointed out. It's like, how can Ukraine be a Nazi country when it lost eight, like I think close to eight million people to Nazi Germany? Like, I believe percentage-wise, in terms of like in relation to population, I think Ukraine had the highest losses in World War II. I mean, so how, how can this country be Nazi? Like it's, I
1: mean, I'm, I'm with you here 100%. You saying, like that, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's straight up state propaganda. You, hear it, from, oh, you absolutely hear it from North Korea when they say that their leader doesn't go to the bathroom because he's mm-hmm. so magical. Like That's just as crazy a thing as for Putin to say, we're going mm-hmm. into Ukraine to get out the neo-Nazis. It's like states say things to get through the next five minutes all the time.
0: Well, and this and, isn't just five, five minutes. Like Putin has been preparing this whole package of propaganda the whole time he's been leader. Mm-hmm. He seems to have some sort of personal hatred against Ukraine. Like, like This is just, it's like personal.
1: Well, speaking of, uh, I mean, just to get personal a little bit here, you, you were mentioning over Messenger about some family you have that are, are fleeing Kiev. And I'm curious, can you... <laughs> Can you tell me specifically about just who those people are? Like, who? How are how are you related? What do they do for a living? Like, what Mm -hmm. what shows did they watch? Like, when you were growing, like, what 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 are they like? I mean, I I don't want to assume this. I don't want to see this person only as somebody who's now a badass making Molotov cocktails. That's not what they grew up in their life setting out to do. They have other interests in the world. Like, what what are these? What are your what's your family like? That's there right now.
0: Uh, yeah, so in in Kiev, that's my um, mother's brother's family. So my my uncle himself is actually in Slovenia right now because mm-hmm. he works there. But his wife and his uh, wife's sister and their mother are in Kiev. And they're living in one of these like very typical Soviet concrete block apartment buildings mm-hmm. uh, that like looks like every other apartment building. You see, in the former Soviet Union countries, so um, basically, because the mother is disabled, they can't. They haven't been able to go to any bomb shelters because it's just like when the air raid siren goes off, they wouldn't have enough time to get there. Like they can't even get her down the stairs. But yesterday, we kind of had a bit of a panic because, um, you know, Putin has changed tactics recently because his military campaign's not working the way he expected. You know, he expected to take Kiev in two days. He thought that by February 26th, everything would be over, but it's already 10 days in and it's not over. So now he's starting to bomb residential areas directly. Now it's like not even just accidentally hitting residential areas, it's directly... So, um, yeah, we panicked a bit, and um, my aunt and her sister decided to try to flee, so they found some bus that was going just in the direction of the west, like, not even clear where, just wherever it can get to, and they're... Uh, a friend of theirs was trying to drive them to the bus, but their their elderly mother got so sick in the car that they just couldn't keep going. They had to turn around. So they're they're back in Kiev right now. Yeah. So th- that's the other thing. It's like w- there are so many people, like especially people my parents' age, like their friends who are stuck in place because they have elderly... Relatives that they can't move.
1: I mean I my father was handicapped at the end of his life in a wheelchair and
0: Yeah, like was, can you imagine well, like I mean, being in the middle of a war zone with him?
1: Just to again no value judgment here, but when I looked at the when I think of the infrastructure of the US compared to the infrastructure of Kiev in terms of handicap access to places. Oh yeah, handicap you
0: know? access is awful over there. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And so yeah.
1: if that I just can't imagine trying to figure that out. And I'm I don't like what so what what are they doing what are their conversations like during the day like how how do how do people in that situation and pardon my lack of a better phrase here how do people keep their shit together what are they what are they doing are they reading books are they playing Sudoku like and I don't mean to be glib glib here but yeah no no I know I'm I'm trying to rack my brain of how what would I do like I think I'd just
0: it's funny you mentioned Sudoku because one of the things my grandpa misses right now are his crossword puzzles that he used to get from his newspaper that he picked up every morning. But there are no print newspapers on sale right now, so he doesn't have his crosswords. And he said, you know, they keep they help keep his mind calmer, so he he doesn't have that right now. But yeah, I mean, what are they in Kiev? Their life right now. So they've um, they scotch taped all of their windows because it. Helps a little bit if the windows get blown out from a nearby blast. You're hoping that the shards of glass are not going to fly everywhere. That's the biggest concern. They've also uh, like saran wrapped all their mirrors. Um, there are they have like tubs, plastic containers of water in their tub just in case. Um, but they, yeah,
1: where do they get? And- Their food, like when you get up and you want, you're like, I want to have a cup of coffee and have breakfast. Where does that
0: happen? So, so in Kiev, the the grocery stores or some of them are still miraculously functioning. So actually, the city is functioning. That's the thing. Like, there's water and electricity so far, at least. Uh, I think there's even public transit to some extent, like wherever possible. So between, like, when there isn't an active air raid siren or active warnings. To stay inside, they are able to go to the grocery store or to the pharmacy. Like, that's still available. Like, I mean, there are some issues with supplies, but there's still food. The city where my family is in southern Ukraine, in Kherson, the one that's been occupied. um, thankfully, Thankfully, they at least weren't getting bombed as badly as Kharkiv. So it was quiet, um, but they were having issues already, like food was running out in the grocery stores. The grocery stores were nearly empty. And then when the Russian troops arrived, they also robbed the stores because they don't have enough of their own food. Uh, so my, my family is stocked up. They, they have things. My grandfather, <laughs> my grandfather is, is a man of his routines. Mm-hmm. so he's 84 and still he basically has to go out almost every morning to like pick up his like try to find the things he normally goes to find
1: i and, <laughs> so, <laughs> and, uh, that I, I will one thing i learned this is a total non-sequitur but one thing one thing i learned during the pandemic about myself was that i needed to get out of the house and go somewhere once a day and talk to a total stranger. That was something I mm-hmm. did never thought I would have in my life. Like, yeah. And I was like, Oh my God, like I need to get out and do this, like go to these four places and then come home. And so I, am empathizing with your grandpa. Like there's, there's a, I really identify with that desire. I mean, like I don't care if there's a war or a pandemic, I am going out to get my crossword and I'm coming home.
0: <laughs> I mean, like literally some days ago there was intense fighting over control of a major bridge that goes into the city, which is what would con- connect the road from Crimea, mm-hmm. which is Russian-occupied, mm-hmm. into Kherson. And at that, in that moment, the Ukrainian troops fought off the Russians on that bridge. But like there was like all night, there was you know sounds of explosions. There was like very active fighting, but by the morning, it had cal- calmed down. So my grandfather set out to find his daily newspaper, and he couldn't find one in all the kiosks nearby because they were all closed for some reason, you know? So then he got on a bus, and he went to the center of town to see if they were selling newspapers. They were also closed. He said everything was closed. It was very empty on the streets.
1: <laughs> what? I mean, I'm, I am I think, and we were laughing because it's funny, but also like, there is another, your grandfather is different than you and me for, and for many reasons, but one of them is that he just has seen more shit than you and I have. And so... Well,
0: he, he was a child in World War II. Right. And, and that city was occupied by Germans for several years. And so, so and he was, he yeah. was
1: a young man during the fall of the Soviet Union. Like... And he was, you know, it's so like, there's, your grandpa's just had more at bats at this. Like he just, he's been at the plate a lot more than you and I have swinging the bat <laughs> against all these crazy pitchers It's pitches. true. And, so- and I
0: mean, and I mean, he is really stressed out. I don't want to underplay mm-hmm. that. He is nervous. He's stressed out. So we're, I mean, we're calling him every day and kind of trying to bolster morale for sure. But but despite that, he's still like he need, he has his routines and he has to do things his way. So like his sister will call him and be like, "You know, Ura, there's an uh, there there are warnings. There's an air raid siren. You have to get in your tub and you know cover yourself with a blanket." And he says, "Well, I just sat down to dinner. My dinner's gonna get cold. My vodka is gonna get warm." I can't let that happen. So he says, so I, so I finished my dinner and drank my vodka and then I went to bed. (laughs)
1: Well, there is something, uh, there's nothing more, there's no better way to demonstrate dissent during a war than getting on a bus and going to get your crossword puzzle. Like there's a weird Um, form of protest there that I find oddly human that it's true. The banality of, or the in the war in the sort of chaos and intense flash of war, the the banality of humanity, the fact that that must keep going to me is.
0: Oh well, yeah, you have to keep living, right?
1: You know, Somehow. that's... Your grandpa's oh. the reason wars don't continue, is because if everybody just stopped doing that then you've seeded everything you've seeded control of everything sure bomb it's that true. building but god damn it my crossword puzzle is going to be fresh and my vodka is going to be cold if you're yeah. going to blow and like there's a that i feel is like this weird distillation of what it means to be alive and be a human being and deal with chaos and so
0: I, it's I, true i
1: wish i could have your grandpa on the podcast and just pick, pick his brain he sounds like a rad guy
0: <laughs> he's great Uh, Oh, this makes me think, too. There's another... I guess there is a certain uh, thing in Western media that I would like to push back against Mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. So there's been quite a bit of Western reporting on just, like, how people are trying to protest in Russia, but it's so dangerous. Look, they're being thrown in jail. And it's true, they are. And even Mm -hmm. kids, Mm -hmm. like, they're arresting children for protesting. It's, It's ridiculous. And I... Yes, I, in a way, I don't want to like downplay the danger they're facing, but I just want to put that in contrast. Like, So first of all, it's a really minuscule percentage of the Russian population who is actually brave enough to go out on the streets. Most of them aren't, and most of them actually don't even believe that the, a war is happening in Ukraine. Like we have reports of uh, people who have relatives in Ukraine and they don't believe that Ukraine is being attacked. So so just I just want everyone to be clear on this, that most Russians right now, it's not that they're too afraid to go to protest. They don't see a need because they still believe that Russia is only... Engaging in a limited military operation, Mm -hmm. they don't believe that Russia is bombing civilians. They don't know any of this. They don't even believe their own relatives. So, that's one thing I want to say. And another thing to do with that is even just this glorification of the people who are actually going out to protest. Like, I I thank them and. They should be doing this, but to contrast that to what happened in in Kherson last night, it's a city occupied by Russian troops. There are tanks, there are people with machine guns. Thousands of people there came out to protest on the streets yesterday, covered in Ukrainian flags. The Russian soldiers were shooting into the air to try to disperse them and possibly shooting at people I haven't heard mm-hmm exactly yet if there were any deaths from this but i've seen videos of the protest and you can hear shooting and like can you imagine the bravery that that requires like what is being thrown in jail against this that people are standing up in front of tanks People are stopping tanks with their bare hands and, like, keeping them from passing through their village. Like, this, like that. that is bravery. That is just insane bravery. And I don't know how much of that is being reported in the Western media. I'm not sure.
1: I, in uh, truth be told, I... I try to stay off the news as much as I can because it's just like drinking—it's horrible drinking out of a fire hose that has nothing but like old, stale water in it, just constantly, you know. And I, but I will say that there, there are, there's a few reports of that that I have seen enough that I feel like, um, it's being touched on. I wouldn't say that, but I've seen a lot of reports. There are a lot of reports that seem to be like trying to imply that that the Russians are opposed to this too um i'm seeing a lot some of, are some right, are but it's right. just
0: such a small percentage
1: and but i think the perception over here on the media at least in, in terms of what i've what i've seen is that the vast majority of russians are not supportive of this um and putin's really dropping the ball here because he's misreading what his public actually supports
0: i think you that's know? optimistic because i also have russian friends that i'm talking to quietly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, you know, I keep asking them, please you have to like spread information through your people and they say, Anna, it's pointless. They don't believe us. Mm-hmm. Like they don't believe us. Yeah. Like uh, one woman I was talking to yesterday, a-, a Princeton physics student, she said, "My whole family in Russia are in the military. They think that I'm a foreign agent." So, I think it's a bit exaggerated in the Western media how much no war sentiment is in Russia.
1: Yeah, and I this is I mean, again this ties in with. I mean, I have conversations about you know uh, the January sixth insurrection with with people who I can't. There's nothing I can say to them, you know. Yeah. What that says to me is that like that's a symptom of yes, people often make bad decisions and stick to them when they shouldn't, but also people learn really bad st- information. <laughs> from but the places.
0: propaganda is insane. And yeah, the primacy, of, is insane.
1: primacy effect, like what you hear first is so hard to disentangle once it's there, once it's in like and if all you're told if the very first thing you're told in your newspaper is x y and z about what's going on in ukraine and that's all you're seeing and every time you turn on rt the only reports you're hearing are you know it's like if you only watch fox news or if you only watch msnbc you know there are there are are times of the year the last couple years if you only watched msnbc you would think that there were maga hat wearing people racing through every street in the rural midwest
0: Mm. not true right just
1: objectively not true if you watch Fox News on the wrong day, you would think that the Black Lives Matter people are burning down every building in the US. Also not true. Right. <laughs> you know. Right. And so like that's those are that those are the two arguments that are being pitted against each other and in Russia, I imagine it's not so different. And so like Well, Russia you know,
0: has intense control over media, right? right so right. And I mean up until this point it's not like they um it's not like they closed down the internet. People had access to the internet and Frankly, they could have found all this information very easily. But, I don't know, a lot of people choose to, as they say, to be apolitical. Which means that they just don't look at anything and they just focus on their daily lives. Because like, they're so terrified of going back to the chaos of the 90s that um, they're willing to look away from all of this just to, to make sure that they have a comfortable life. Yeah. But... I think this is something that I'm really realizing right now, like slowly over the last couple of years, but right now especially, is that there's no such thing as being apolitical when you say you're apolitical, it just means that you leave yourself open to propaganda hmm. because information is still coming your way, but you're accepting it absolutely passively without thinking so but in but by doing that, you are following someone else's politics you're not a political you're following politics so one prime example of this was one of my mom's closest friends in ukraine she is of russian descent but she's been in ukraine since her Mm -hmm. 20s so she's one of the people right now making bandera smoothies Mm -hmm. to defend herself against russian troops that's the irony her daughter lives in russia like this and this daughter, she's about my age. She grew up in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, her parents are still in Ukraine, but she moved to Russia a few years ago. Up until this attack started, she believed that Ukraine was the aggressor in everything that was rap- ramping up. Yeah. And her her parents live in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And and her daughter, she she styles herself as someone who is apolitical. Yeah. I, yeah.
1: Well, what? Let me ask you two more questions, and then I'll. I'll. You. You are. You have a way more stressful day to day life these days mm-hmm. than I than I do, uh, and I want to be respectful of that. And so I want to ask you just two more questions. Um, where? How do you see this ending? Like I, it just. And, and I, I <sighs> ask that it's sort yeah. of. Uh, not. I don't need like on this date. This is probably going to yeah. happen. But like thinking of. This moment, not just as, you know, March 5th, 2022. This is a moment that's, this is March 5th, 2022, tacked on to 1,500 years of other days that where all these decisions by Catherine the Great and Peter the Great. All these, you know, everything, all of these decisions led you and me to talk to today about some context mm-hmm. around
0: what's happening in Ukraine. Where... I mean, can, can I say how my... I can talk about how my family thinks this is the only way it could end. Mm-hmm. Can I talk about that?:
1: Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. and again yeah. Uh, I'm not there's no right answer here. i'm I want mm-hmm. your genuine feelings on march fifth
0: twenty twenty two: So we, we think that the only way this this war will end is if Russia goes through a complete economic collapse mm. and when they start having hunger riots basically, Russia has to get to that point where people are rioting on the streets because there's no food. Because uh, it doesn't seem like anything else is working. So what all of these sanctions that the West is imposing, it was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, This is going to be huge. So honestly, we're all just sitting there and looking at the course, like the conversion rate of the ruble, we're watching it crash and we're just waiting for all the repercussions and I think that the only way truly that this can be over in a more permanent way is if Russia stops existing as such a large country
1: Tell me more about that What do you
0: because, mean? Because well, Russia itself is essentially Moscow colonizing a whole bunch of territory and Russia includes so many other countries uh, Kinds of people, so many different ethnicities within Russia. Who I think if been, you go
1: to if you go to parts of Uzbekistan, where the, you, you know, you like, don't
0: even have to go to Uzbekistan. Like right. even places that are officially within the Russian Federation, there are so mm. many different ethnicities there that have been oppressed for centuries. The way that Ukrainians have been oppressed. The Georgian and Caucasus, all of this, is
1: like like that. Old, yeah, yeah,
0: all of that. And uh, and even like the people of Siberia, like that's where all of Russia's resources are coming from. That's what they live on. It's the oil, gas. That is one of the poorest regions of Russia. Like there are soldiers coming from there to Ukraine right now who call their mothers after they've been taken prisoner and say, Mom, their villages here have paved roads and electricity. So I think the way, so this, like, this is how those people live, and they are the wealth of Russia. Like, if, if they weren't under Moscow, maybe they could build something better for themselves. So my hope is that Russia will fall apart into bits so that they don't have this humongous might to keep waving a gun at all of their neighbors and so, and so that all of those bits can actually just get on with the living as opposed to supporting this imperialist narrative that Russia is the best and Russia must rise and Russia must have its high place in the world
1: I really appreciate you putting into context some of the like the, the idea of you know uh, Moscow as a colonizer like I I think I had a sort of surfacy idea or relationship with that particular part of the history. But thinking of Siberia, thinking of Ukraine as these places that are no different than Haiti or Trinidad or Barbados that were colonized by the British and by other people, but mostly by the British, you know, um, it's a really interesting way that I you've made me think about that stuff. And I... As you're talking, I don't know, like if that breakup starts on March 6, 2022, that also could be a t- there's terrifying re- repercussions to that, and there's gonna, it's, yeah, it's going to be
0: terrifying. Yeah, <laughs>
1: but, you know, like
0: r- yeah, Russia is in danger of going back to like pre World War One levels of standard of living. Mm. Like they're on the brink of that essentially. Especially the longer they continue fighting in Ukraine, the worse it's going to be for them.
1: Yeah, and the—I mean—the thing about the your your point about the sort of breaking the financial back of the Russians—that's usually the way wars a lot of wars end. You know, Napoleon oh, was, yeah. was he had he got he the way he got out of Haiti or, or it wasn't Haiti then, but you know the way he got out of there was he they got bankrupted. The slave rebellions were too expensive, so he mm-hmm. sold the Louisiana Purchase to pay it off, and that's why we have the Louisiana Purchase. You know, like um, right. we.
0: Well, I think this is also how America got Alaska. I mean, I'm, a lot of people don't know this, but Alaska used to be Russian.
1: Ah, yeah, and so you so. sell parts of things because it's you got to pay off a of debt. And you know, look at Yeah. Look at I mean, the Russians got bankrupted in Afghanistan. We basically got bankrupted in Afghanistan and Iraq over the I mean, this is what happens. Yeah. And so Yeah, and uh, well, I just a yeah, wrap I should
0: go because I have to interview someone in Ukraine. Oh my right god, after okay. This. Yeah. I'll let you go.
1: Where can folks find out about um if if they want to learn more information, where do you recommend they go if they want to help?
0: Uh well if they follow me on Facebook, I'm posting things about okay. like hero things you can do. Uh so I have a specific post of just like I think there's like seven or eight different ways that people can help depending on where they are financially and psychologically. So, if people follow me on Facebook, they can find that information.
1: Amazing, Anna! Thank you so so much for your time. We they, uh, let's yeah. take a rain check on a second podcast where we don't talk about war. We just talk about interesting compositions. Yeah, talk about music.
0: You know? Yeah, <laughs> no, that would
1: be way more fun. But Anna, give my best to your family and your friends, and keep me posted if there's anything else that that I should know. Okay.
0: Sounds good. Thank you so All much, right. Josh. Take it easy. It was good to talk to you. Likewise. Bye
1: bye. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, My good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check them out. Liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy. Dunleavypans.com. D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y-Pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on uh, in so percussion as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, He's an amazing, amazing tuner builder, um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, want to learn more about the goings-on in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Alejandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out, mangochowclothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.